Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansom, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PG Talk podcast. This is episode 89, in which we'll be interviewing Dr. Gaia Nekeria, who is a researcher and teacher in psychology and neuroscience at University of Graz in Austria. She has degrees in biology, psychology, and has worked for a number of universities in France, the United Kingdom, Germany, and Austria. She also works as a writing coach and scientific trainer. So, um, Raya, you have a lot of things on your plate and you combine a lot of things. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to this point? What was your background and career path that led you to this combination of tasks? Yeah, first I want to thank you, Eva, for inviting me on this podcast. Uh, it's wonderful to see that other people are also interested in the topics we're going to talk about. And yeah, I'm very grateful for your invitation. Yes, yeah, so yes, <laughs> at the moment, quite a bit on my plate. Uh, I started studying uh, biology uh, with always the idea of uh, becoming a neuroscientist. I've always been fascinated by the mind, by the brain. But I must say that it's taking me quite a lot of time to find my pathway <laughs> so uh, and to find something that I felt that I was really at home. So, yeah, I started studying biology. And it was very interesting. I did a master's in neuroscience and I loved it. But afterwards, I felt something was missing. I loved learning about how the brain works and neurons and all these things. But I've always, I think my interest for psychology was also always related to the fact that I wanted to learn something also about me and and something actionable in a way. So after my studies in, in biology, I started studying psychology and I also got a master's in psychology and I did my PhD thesis at the intersection between the two fields. So it was also perfect. Um, and I loved working uh, in, in in neuroscience, so I do brain imaging research mostly, but also behavioral experiments, so where we observe the behavior of people. And I loved the topics, I love what I was working on, but it was not really easy for me to work in academia. And I was, uh, yeah, I was struggling with my career. I didn't really know where it would be going. I mean, I think we all know that it's not easy to have a career in academia. I also was wondering about the meaning of my work. Uh, I, I've always done quite basic research and it's intellectually very interesting, but I always felt that, that something was missing. I was not really at some point really sure what, um, I would I was bringing to the world. And so three years ago, I created my own business. In addition to my academic career, I lead workshop for scientists on the topic of scientific writing, on productivity, on motivation, focus. And I also started uh, two years ago uh, my digital baby, which is my blog. So the blog is called a Brilliant Mind Not Blog, and it's a blog for scientists. And it's the combination of all my interests. So I talk about uh, some neuroscience, psychology, but in a more applied way. So it's it's um, it's perfect fitting for me. Uh, and I like talking about these topics because I feel this is the best way to improve myself. So I try to all the methods that I read about, I try them on myself, I see what works. So it's very motivating on a personal level as well. That's great. And then out of curiosity, so you are originally from France and now you're in Austria. And how how did you go from one place to the other? And uh, where else have you been in the past okay. years? <laughs> That's a long story. I will try to make it short. 
So yeah, I did my PhD thesis in France. I was already at two different places. I was at the University of Toulouse. I was in a social psychology lab there, and I was also in Paris and in the Center for Atomic Energy in a neuroscience group. And then I spent one year postdoc at the University of Bangor in Wales in the UK. Uh, and then I was five years at the University of Cologne and in, I've been in Austria now uh, for eight years. <laughs> nice. I've decided at some point I wanted to stay also. So yes, now I I'm imagine. staying there. <laughs> <laughs> I loved moving around. It was very interesting, but I feel that I've seen enough countries and now I want to stay in one place. <laughs> I... I certainly understand that feeling. <laughs> um, and can you tell us a bit more about your research? You, what are you currently working on? And besides your your company, what what research are you focusing on? So I currently have a position at the University of Graz. I'm working on my own grant that I received from the uh, Austrian Science Foundation, and my field of expertise is social psychology and social neuroscience. I'm interested in how people are uh, influencing each other, how uh, people around us uh, shape us and influence us, and also how our brains process this kind of influence. During my PhD thesis, I worked on the influence of emotions on moral behavior. And uh, during my multiple postdocs, I worked on social comparison. So the fact that we compare ourselves to other people. And currently I am working on the top a topic that's perfect for me. And I think that's very useful for many people. It's the topic of self-control. So um, the research grant that I have and the PhD supervise, uh, student that I supervise We're working on, yeah, how can we learn to control ourselves better and to resist temptations in order to get the things that really matter. And yeah, I started working on that because at that time I realized that was the skill I needed the most. And uh, I wanted to learn more about it. So it's a little bit of a me search. But um, yeah, and we're looking at how other people can help us improve self control. So here again, Can we learn self-control from other people? That's very mm -hmm. working on What are some of perhaps um, surprising findings that you've come across in, in the research that you've done over the years? Because I, I see that a lot of these topics are valuable and interesting for all of us because they are all things that apply in, in our daily lives. So could you perhaps tell us a few things that came across as surprising that maybe represented not correctly in, in the popular literature than uh, that you see in magazines or what, what society tells us. And something that I find absolutely fascinating, that's, that's what my field of research shows, but I think this is, we underestimate that absolutely, is the influence of other people. So we, we try to arrange our lives in many ways so that we get the things that we want to get. Yeah, I mean, talking about self-control, for example, We, we try to set goals, we try to plan things. But something we never think about is that the people with whom we interact on a regular basis, and sometimes we're not even aware of them, also have a tremendous influence on, in our lives. And this is what social psychology shows. And I can tell you maybe uh, something that came across like right now, just before we're record recording this podcast. We started a new experiment. And so... I hope that none of our participants is listening to this podcast because they should not know what it's about. But let's hope they don't. And um, what we want to see is that we want to try to find a way to help people persist longer on a difficult task. So we created a task that is really, really boring. You have, I don't know, maybe you know this kind of task. You have to spot a letter among a whole bunch of other letters that look very similar. Like you have a C among... Uh, hundreds of O's, you know, like something like that. So it's a very boring task. And we pre-tested it with a few people. And usually after 15 minutes, you're really tired. Your eyes really hurt and it's really difficult to do the task. So you stopped after 
15, 20 minutes. And now we started recording, uh, running the experiment and we had certain situations where the participants were alone in a room and other situations where they started in pairs. So two participants started at the same time. And indeed, when a participant started alone in a room, after 15, 20 minutes of this task, they stopped it. But we, for the participants who were in pairs, I mean, they were not interacting with each other. They were two opposite sides of the room. They didn't know each other. Nothing happened with each other. But they stayed so long that we had to interrupt the, stu the, the, the study. We had to come in and tell them, you know, you've been there for... For 45 minutes, you have to go out. I mean, we were 30 shocked. So my PhD student came earlier and she said, Gaia, we have a problem. They, they, they stay forever in the room when they are uh, yeah, in pairs. So we didn't intend the experiment in this way, but that shows that it is a very strong influence. And, and, and to surround ourselves with people who have the qualities that we want to have is a fantastic way to develop these qualities without even being aware of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great insight. Now, switching topics a little bit, you also work as a blogger and as a coach for academics. So tell us a bit about what you do in both of these functions. Yes. So um, um, I, lead, I lead workshops at many universities in Austria and in Europe. And in this workshop, I teach scientific writing, I teach focus, yeah, I already mentioned this, different uh, facts. The idea, but I, I started with this workshop because of the blog. And the idea of my blog sprouted many years ago. I think I was still a PhD student. And I had to write my papers and it was so difficult. And I was really struggling. I struggled to write my papers, to publish my ideas. I was demotivated sometimes. I had to deal with rejection. I mean, all the things that probably many of the people listening to your podcast also experience. And while I was procrastinating, I, I would go on blogs, you know, and, and read these blogs. And these blogs gave me some form of comfort. And after some time, I realized, oh, maybe there is a blog that could help me and that could resolve my problems, like could help me write my papers and focus and not break out into tears and desperation when my paper gets rejected. So I looked for this blog and I couldn't find it. I don't know if you were already around Eva at the time, but I, I didn't find you at the time. Maybe you were, probably you were not now at, at that time you were not yet. So Yeah, and then I started to think, oh, that would be so nice to have such a blog. And it was some kind of fantasy I had in my mind. But then I arrived, I moved to Graz. So I really liked being here. I didn't really know why my career would go because it's very difficult to get a permanent position here. The professor with whom I work, I mean, that, that would be the, the chair I could get, is young and healthy. So it was <laughs> unlikely that she would be gone in the next years. And so I, I didn't really know where to go. And I met my current partner and he saw my struggles. And I think here again, a good example of how people influence our lives. He saw something in me and he believed in me and he said, yeah, yeah, I think you can do better than that. And uh, you're not happy with your job and you have so many qualities. Why don't you do something else? And then this idea that was always in the back of my mind of the blog came to fruition. I said, and because he believed in me, I said, okay, I'm, I'm willing to take the leap, jump in the cold water and see what will happen. And yeah, so that's how I started. And I, I thought, okay, I want to develop a method to help people write. I had always this idea, oh, that would be so nice to have some kind of recipe where you just follow like different steps, very clear steps. And then at the end, you have a paper. You know? So that was always my, my fantasy. And, and I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to develop that. And, but I knew how I worked, but I thought I should gain some experience with other people. And so I called the universities. I said, I'm teaching workshops on scientific writing. At that time, I didn't have anything. <laughs> I just like 
<laughs> I just bluffed my way with the universities. They said, okay, great. Several of them said, yes, teach a workshop for us. And so that's how I started my workshops. And now, yeah, I have, I don't know, over 15 universities where I regularly teach in Austria and Europe. And the blog is growing. It's still a little bit in its infancy, but it's growing. And I'm creating exactly the course I had dreamt of. So, yeah, the fantasy becomes reality. Mm-hmm. And as you already mentioned, you focus a lot on writing in in particular and i see on your blog as well that you talk a lot about productivity and, and methods to work why is it that you focus on those topics for academics so i love the scientific method that's my thing i feel at home at universities among scientists that's my my fishbowl <laughs> and i always knew i wanted to do something like that but i see that for many people writing is difficult And managing oneself is also very difficult. I also know that from experience. I've been there. and But I've always had the intuition that there was something more, that it was possible to overcome these challenges. You just needed the, the, the right uh, inputs. And so when while I was totally focusing on my academic career, I started to look for this kind of method, but it takes a lot of time because I couldn't find something that was really fitting to all the challenges and this recipe I had in my mind. So um, I couldn't do both. And when my partner motivated me to, to try that out, I decided, okay, I'm going to take the time. I'm going to invest the energy to find these methods, to try them on myself, to try them on the people with whom I work, the students with whom I work. And that's what I've done over the last years. And I've discovered so many interesting things. It's really fascinating, but it's clearly, I feel too much work for one person. <laughs> I mean, it's too much work for just me benefiting from it, and my students. So yeah, I, I'm happy to share that now with other people. That's great. And zooming into particularly PhD students, what are some of the common difficulties that they face in terms of writing and their productivity in general? Could you tell us a bit about that? So I think the first thing is that most scientists are not trained enough in scientific writing. And this is an understatement. I, I find it's ridiculous. I, I don't know how it's in other countries, but in the countries where I've worked, so in France, in in the UK, in, in Germany and in Austria, it is assumed that after your A-level, you know how to write and you can write a scientific paper that will be highly criticized by experts in the field, which is really not the case. So we have great trainings, usually in statistics, in different methods, but scientific writing is omitted. And scientific writing is a complex task. We are not pre-programmed to write. Writing is a cultural invention. We are pre-programmed to speak, but not to write. So it is something that is very effortful. It, and, and writing papers is way more difficult than just writing your name or a shopping list. So it takes a lot of knowledge. And there is a blueprint. There are things that can help people write. but. They, they need to know about it. So I think this is the first thing that, that is really the problem. Supervisors of PhD students usually intuitively know these blueprints, but not necessarily explicitly. And if you're good at something, it doesn't mean that you're good at explaining it uh, to other people. So that's the reason why on the blog and during my workshops and now in the online course, I, I want to share these methods to help people um, write. The second thing is that I feel that PhD students usually have a lot of freedom to organize themselves, especially the important tasks like publishing your papers don't have necessarily a deadline. And we are also not trained to manage our, ourselves. So it's very tempting to procrastinate. It's very tempting to do tasks that have that are easier, but maybe not as much impact on our careers. 
Yeah, so, um, and, may, and many of the PhD students that I meet feel overwhelmed, they're inefficient, they're not productive enough, and then their motivation and their beliefs in themselves start sinking. I was recently at a postdoc writing retreat. I was leading this retreat, and I was shocked by how depressed, in a sense, and dis disillusioned the postdocs were. And that's interesting because I feel like first-year PhD students are usually way more motivated than people who have been there for a long time. So it's it's not it's it's it doesn't help. And I think the third thing that is a really high difficulty for PhD students is that the rejection rates are very high. Um, we are trained to be critical, so we critic each other all the time. In, I see the research group is with whom I work. Each time someone presents something. We have to make a conscious effort to tell them something positive because we see all the things that can be improved. And this is with a good intention most of the time. But for motivation, it's absolutely killer. And either you have a thick skin and you go through that and you don't care so much, or you really need to have good self-management strategies to stay balanced and motivated. Yeah, these are some great insights. And... I certainly recognize what you say about the fact that we tend to immediately go to our critique and what needs to be improved rather than to to give the positive feedback and to say what is going well. So that's certainly something that I I need to keep in mind when providing feedback to my students as well, because I also immediately start to look for, okay, this, this can be done better and this can be improved. And, mm -hmm. It's uh, certainly uh, something I recognize. Yeah, and it's a nat natural thing. It's, in psychology, it's called the negativity bias. So we have a tendency to see negative information, to pay more attention to negative information. So it is normal, but but it's tricky when for 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 PhD students. Mm -hmm. yeah. And getting back to the topic of common difficulties in writing and productivity, what are the typical difficulties you would see in faculty members in professors? So I think it's really challenging to supervise PhD students. I currently have two PhD students that I supervise and I find it's really not easy. And sometimes I think, Oh gosh, I'm, writing experts and I'm still struggling to supervise their writing. How is it possible? But it's, it's perfect because they are my best teachers, really. But I think that uh, we often, we faculty members, we often take certain knowledge for granted from PhD students. And we assume yeah, they know certain things and uh, we don't remember how it was to not know these things. So I think this is a big uh, challenge. And faculty members have a lot of responsibilities. They have teaching responsibilities, research to pursue, grant proposal, administrative tasks, families. So usually they are very busy. Most of those that whom have met are good scientists. If they manage to go that far, they're usually really good at what they're doing. And they know intuitively what to do to succeed in academia, but it's another thing to explain it to someone. And especially if you don't have much time and you've stressed yourself. And recently I received a pre-registration from one of my students and there were many things that were not working and it took me so much time to go through it. And I felt really frustrated. It was really challenge to to realize hey she's doing her best and and be patient and what does she need to know in order to write better pre-registrations mm -hmm. next time so i think we need more tools we need more metal we need better training for phd students and faculty members need to be supervised because they don't have time to think about scientific writing mm -hmm. five hours per day it's just not yeah. possible and zooming out a little bit here, what would be your best tips for academic writing and productivity? So when it comes to academic writing, I think the thing that helped me the most is 
that you should not start immediately to write, but you need to take some time to some time to reflect on what you're going to write. There are some general writing principles that you need to learn. And I feel that storytelling is the most useful tool that I've ever encountered. So understanding what makes a story, how scientific papers tell stories, and using this element of a story to build your paper, I find it's tremendously useful. But there are many other also writing principles that are really helpful. I feel that what really helps also is before you do any writing, you figure out the journal where you want to submit your paper and you identify what they expect from you. Because something that's really difficult is to write something and have to change it. And especially if we're not very experienced in scientific writing, we sometimes have wrong ideas regarding what we have to deliver. Um, well, I was writing my PhD thesis. I had the idea that it, it should be a masterpiece. <laughs> I was had a bit of a delusion of grandeur. Let's, let's put it this way. And so I wanted that to write an exhaustive piece of work. And, and it was about morality. So there, there is around 5,000 years of people thinking about morality. <laughs> so there is a lot of research in philosophy, in psychology, in economics, in, in, in neuroscience now. So there was so much that I wanted to learn about and I wanted to report in my PhD thesis. And I worked like crazy to write this PhD thesis and I wrote 468 pages. And, and, and then I realized that I didn't have to write this 468 pages. I, I could have done exactly, a, I, I would have had as good as a mark with 150 pages. And probably the people who received my PhD thesis had a fit when they saw this huge thing coming to them, you know, and they had to, re to read it, the, the people in my jury. So, so yeah, and I, I suspect that nobody ever read this 468 pages. Right now, it's, I use it to elevate my monitor, you know, <laughs> because it's so high. So I have an ergonomic uh, uh, station uh, at the university thanks to my PhD thesis. But this is just an anecdote to say that we do have certain concepts about what we have to deliver, and sometimes we don't have to do it. So read the guidelines of the journal, download a couple of papers published in the journals, see how they structure, see how long they are, and try to make something similar. I find it's a really good way to improve your writing. And yeah, uh, when it comes to productivity, I feel that... I don't like this culture in science where you have to you have to produce a lot. I find people produce a lot of stuff. I don't know who read all these papers that are published. I'm suspecting not many people. So I would say that rather than producing a lot of papers, produce quality research. Um, yeah, and and take time to work on a research project that truly inspire you, that fit your values, your interests, and where you see meaning, where you see, okay, I see that I'm bringing something really useful. Um, I feel also, again, to surround yourself with people who are competent, nice people, you will enjoy your work so much more, and you will also, this way, create more meaningful contribution, I think. So that's the first tip regarding productivity. The second tip I would say is that being busy doesn't mean that you're productive. Um, when I was a PhD student also, I, I, I analyzed, so I analyzed my fMRI data seven times. And uh, fMRI data are very huge data files. So it takes a lot of time to analyze them. But each time I was really impatient and I wanted to to get started, and I knew there were some things going on that I hadn't really thought through about the kind of analysis I wanted to do, but I thought, I don't care, I'm going to work on it, I'm going to push it. Sometimes I, I did 
few all-nighters, you know, super happy. Ah, tomorrow I will have my results. And then the next day I realize I just did crappy things. So <laughs> yeah, being busy doesn't make you productive. Take time to plan, take time to set priorities, to say no. And I feel that reviewing and improving your efficiency on a regular basis is really helpful. Um, I've seen that you've been reading also this time management book. I saw that on your Instagram, Eva. Yes. <laughs> uh, from, uh, what's her name? Laura Vanderkam, the Tranquility by Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Have you been starting applying her advice? Yeah, so actually I've read her first book, 168 Hours, when I was still a PhD student. And I think her blog is one of the first blogs that I also started reading And that was 2009, 2010, when I was a PhD student. And I, I, I learned a lot from the topics that she covered when it comes to, to tracking time. But also a lot of what she talks about is, especially in this new book, and I'm only halfway through, is about um, living a life that is rich and full and that has time for one of the rules that she talks about in um, Tranquility by Tuesday is to have one big and one small adventure in the week to really look for something fun to do, um, whether that is alone or with family. So those are, are things that, that I qu find quite inspiring as well. But besides just the, sometimes time management gets really to the, to the point of like optimizing everything and to, you know, it kind of sucks the joy out of life at, at some point when you, when you start to, optimized to the point that that everything can be done faster but then what's without thinking of what really needs to be done and i think that her perspectives were quite nice in that yeah yeah so I've all, I'm, i'm at the rule three and the third rule is about planning on friday mm -hmm. so i've started doing that also <laughs> and uh and i think it's a very good idea i think it really helps a lot to take some time to plan ahead to ask oh, what should i work on also plan plan your free time mm -hmm. sports all these personal things it's very useful yeah and i think my last productivity tip would be improve your writing skills <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that's the thing that you have to be you have you need writing uh, for your career and My, my supervisor, the professor with whom I worked in Cologne, Thomas Mosweiler, is a very good social psychologist, and he was such a good writer, and he could, he could write a paper in four days. And he was an amazingly productive uh, uh, scientist. So, yeah, if you can, I, I think four days is really ambitious. <laughs> Maybe mm -hmm. we can start with, I don't know, a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, But but to get better at that is going to be very helpful, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, changing topics a little bit here, we have a number of general questions that we ask all our interviewees and uh, we would like to, or I would like to fire them off to you today. And the first one is, what is your best piece of advice for PhD students? So I'm going to reveal to your audience that you sent me the questions beforehand. And... And I took so much time thinking about this question because I was just like, wow, I have tons of advice. I mean, if you ask me, I can rumble the whole night, but you're asking me the mother of all advice, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, which one is the best one? And I, I thought, okay, what is the one thing that helped me the most as a PhD student? And For my career, but also for my personal life, there is one habit that has, I mean, I think for me, there is a before and after in my life and it's meditation. Do you meditate, Eva, also? I do, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I started with mindfulness meditation as I was in Wales at the University of Bangor. I was coming from Paris and I ended up in this charming little city far from known civilization for me <laughs> so i had a lot of free time when i was not working and i but but the university in psychology was really good and they were the first ones to do research about mindfulness meditation mm -hmm. and 
So I started meditating there and I loved it from the beginning on. I thought it's a bit like the gym of the mind. You try to train your mind to be focused on one thing. It can be the air at the tip of your nose, the feeling of air, or it can be a sound or sensation or something visual or thought even. And each time the mind drifts away gently, you acknowledge the moment you realize that you're not focusing on what you should be focusing on, you acknowledge it and gently you bring it back to the thing you want to pay attention to. And I, for me, it's helped me to take distance from my thoughts. And I think many people experience that. So that between the moment, first, you don't believe your thoughts anymore. You know, before I, I used to believe that everything that was happening in my mind was reality. And now when you meditate for a certain time, you can see the thoughts arising almost, being around and then disappearing a bit like a cloud in, in the sky. And that gives you always this lapse of time between the event and the reaction. And this is so useful to have a little bit of time not react immediately, but think, okay, what do I do with that now? Oh, I'm really angry right now. <laughs> Maybe I should not say exactly what I think. I should take a little walk. So it, it gives you more awareness. And I feel that meditating regularly helps all mind qualities to unfold. Uh, you improve focus, you deal better with mood, with your mood, your stress. Uh, it's been shown that um, yeah, it's helpful for many different things, so it's very useful and doesn't cost a thing. And you can do it in 5-10 minutes a day if you don't have more time. I think the only thing one should tell your audience if they don't meditate already is that if you have depression or burnout, then you should not do too long sessions at least, like rather short sessions. And if it really doesn't feel good, because when we are in this kind of states, the thoughts can be really invading and, and really difficult. And then we, we get too busy with our thoughts. So then it's better to first address the depression, the burnout, the, the, the high anxiety. And then when one has a little bit more uh, surplus to, to, to meditate. Yeah. 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 That's, that's great advice. Now what what kind of meditation do you do, Eva? I use mindfulness meditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I use mostly Headspace the the application, um, whether that be guided or unguided, I kind of depends on uh, on what I want to focus on. Mm -hmm. did, did you also experience such a, an improvement in your life with meditation? It's difficult to say because I started pretty much on and off long ago when I was 15 oh, really? um, so it's hard to say I do know that there's been times then that I have not been consistent with the habit and then I feel different and then I pick it up and I, I feel better um, but it's difficult to, to really say there's a big before and after because it's been with me for a very long time mm -hmm. interesting you've been mm -hmm. a pioneer <laughs> in the west mm -hmm. The other question that we ask all our interviewees and that many of us struggle with as well is to how you set boundaries to work. I personally, I don't feel I need to set boundaries per se because I, I, I love what I'm doing. And for me, it's not just a work. It also adds meaning to my life and it really enriches it is not just a way to earn money. I mean, it would be a bad way probably to earn money also because we don't earn that well. So, so I see that, but, but I think you, you need breaks and you need other things in your life than work. And I see, I interpret your question more in that sense. So, yeah. And most of us have other wishes than a career. We, and other interests than our jobs. So what makes a good life is, to not only have a nice career, but also to have meaningful connections with others, to 
have passions outside your life. And, and the research in psychology shows that people will have several areas in their lives react also better to a more resilient in the face of struggles. Because if it becomes difficult, for example, at work, then you have a circle of friends or your family or some sports activity or some creative endeavors that help you take your, out, your head out of it and resource in other ways. And the same thing happens also or the other, if you break up with your partner, it's it's important to have other things in your life because then you can find comfort in these things. And you don't define yourself just by your career, right? If I my paper gets rejected, then I think I'm nothing because my career is everything that I have. But I still have great friends and they love me and they see my qualities. So for them, I'm, I'm there. And that really helps set the balance. So... I think it, it's really important to have that. It's a way to recharge our energy, our creativity. And yeah, but it's, I see many people who struggle to stop thinking about work when they're not at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. And my, my tip would be if, if you're in a situation, if you keep thinking about work when you're at home, don't check your emails before leaving the office or at home. I think many of us do that. Like this is the last thing that we do before we go home is that we check our emails one last time. And sometimes there is this little bomb that explodes in front of us. And I just wanted to go, I have never, I don't have enough time to answer this email. And then it follows us the whole weekend or the whole night. So yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. (laughs) And something I'm not particularly good at. (laughs) (laughs) It requires discipline. Yeah, yeah. I'm already happy that I managed to, or that I removed my work email from my phone. So I'm not checking it before I I want to go sleep because otherwise I'm thinking of everything that needs to be resolved uh, instead of sleeping. So that's already the first step. May I return you the question also? So what... How do you set your boundary to work? Yeah, that's uh, certainly not something that I'm very good at um, because work tends to be greedy and and take more time if I let it. So for me, one of the the hard boundaries, so to say, that I have is that I have my daughter and she needs to get to places and she, uh, she has her activities in the afternoon. So I typically have a hard stop uh, at the end of the workday to, to get home and take her to, to her, uh, for example, to her Dutch classes. Um, but many times I will try and do some work in the evening after she goes to bed. And that that's something that I'm still not sure on how to, how to arrange that, so to say, because sometimes it's, it's necessary. Um, but I would rather have it fit all in my work day. Yeah. Especially just before going to bed, then it's very present in your mind when you go to sleep. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know as well that there is some, some choices that I have to make. If she, especially last year, she was taking her Dutch classes in, in the city. So I had to essentially leave work before 2.30 p.m. So I I wasn't able to get a full work day in. And then, of course, by the time she goes to bed, it's late. And that's that's something that... And that also really changes over time, depending on her activities and uh, other things that we have going on in life. So it's kind of a, a continuous figuring out on how to structure my days. Uh, moving on to the third question that we ask all our interviewees is, how has COVID-19 changed your job and daily tasks? So I launched my blog at the beginning of, beginning of the first lockdown in Austria. I think it was the first week. It was planned this way. <laughs> and that was the first week of the lockdown. And at the same time, I reduced my activity at the university. I had a almost full-time position. And I I don't remember. Yeah. Then I, st- uh, I had just a part-time position. So I was anyway working from home 
COVID-19 or not. Um, and I have more online meetings. I find that when I lead my workshops, it's not exactly the same thing because I, there is something about being all around each other and interacting directly with each other that I find you cannot really have online, although you can also have really interesting interaction. It's, it's not nothing, but there is something about being together that's really special. But what I realize is that if I spend too much time online, then my well-being decreases. And recently, I've started also consciously going out in the morning, especially, and really leaving the office, leaving the indoors for at least 10 minutes once in a while during my day to take some light. Because I think that research shows that light is really important for focus. It's very important because our different physiological systems are on circadian rhythms. And so the light that we see in the morning and during the day helps our, our biological clocks to, to, to adjust. And when I realized when I was spending sometimes whole days in, indoor that I felt really bad at the end of the day. And now... I intentionally, in the morning, take a walk, at least 10 minutes outside, and I feel that it, it starts my day in a totally different way. And also when I realize I'm really tired, I struggle to focus, I go out, and it's, it's funny, it's some kind of reset that we have in ourselves mm -hmm. to improve our focus. Yeah. Um, that kind of leads us nicely into the last question because you already mentioned that you tend to have a walk in the in the morning. Um, overall, what does a day in the life look like for you? I don't have a typical day because I have three jobs. I have my the university, I have my blog, and I have my workshops. Yesterday, for example, I was in Vienna for a scientific writing workshop. So my day depends on what is on the agenda that day. At the moment, I'm also building a house. I mean, I'm not building it myself with my bare hands. Mm -hmm. Other people building the house and criticizing that they're not, it doesn't go fast enough. <laughs> but um, yeah, so every day is a bit different, but I have a morning routine. And this is this, I try to stick to it wherever I am. When I get up, I usually get up at the same time at 6.30. And the first thing that I do is that I take a cold shower. I mean, not immediately cold, but take a warm shower and I finish it with a cold shower for two minutes at least. No, two minutes maximum, let's say. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so, at least 30 seconds and two minutes maximum. Most days I, I manage the two minutes. On days I really don't feel like it, I say 30, 30 seconds. So, yes, and then I meditate, I go out for a walk, and I have breakfast. And if I don't have a workshop, if I can manage my day the way I want, then I start my day with two hours working on my most important tasks, especially the, the most demanding, demanding tasks. I've recently, I've discovered Focusmate. Do you know it? Uh, no. Is it a Pomodoro application or is it uh, something to block distractions? No. I mean, <laughs> it's ah. a little bit of all that. Okay. It's an online platform that connects you with other people who ah. also want to work. And so you register yourself in a calendar and you can choose between sessions that last either 25 minutes or 50 minutes. And then... You go on the blog, on the website, you join the session and you're connected with another person who has also, they have their camera on. And so you start the session by declaring your goals for the sessions. And then everybody work and you keep the camera on while you work. And at the end of the session, you have a little harp music <laughs> that announced that the 50 minutes are gone. And both of you finish up and say, okay, how did it go for you? And, and then, yeah, you move to the next session or you do something else. And I love it. It's so nice. It's such a nice way to stick to your commitment because I, so I plan on Fridays, good girl. And I already plan all my 
focus mate sessions, and then I know that someone will be waiting for me. And so this is something I, I don't want, I want to, to be punctual. So then I show up at eight in the morning, I'm there. And this is so funny. There is something really about working with someone else. Even if you don't work on the same thing, the quality of attention, the focus is so good. It's fantastic. And it's fun. You see people from all around the world. Last time I was connected with a lady. It was 10 in the morning in Graz. And, and I saw that it was night where she was. And I said, oh, where are you? And she said, I'm in New York. It's four in the morning. Oh. And then she, she showed me the skyline of New York through a window. You know, it was, wow. So it's really funny. It's, it's, a, it's a very good way to, to work focused. And the thing that I'm currently trying, the new habit I'm currently trying to apply is the normal multitasking habit. So really to focus on one thing at a time. It's really hard for me because I love podcasts and I tend to listen or audiobooks. So I tend to listen to them often when I'm biking or doing other things, but I'm trying to really just do one thing at a time. If I take a bath, to just take a bath. If I not check my phone, if I eat, not watch something at the same time. So all these different things. And I must say, I find it, it's really nice. It, it requires, again, self-discipline, but it brings another quality to life to be yeah, focus is just a really nice thing to experience, right? To be in flow, to be fully absorbed on one task is that these are the best moments of our life. So to cultivate that in all these little things, this little moment is really nice. Well, so this has been a really great interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gaia. My pleasure. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. It's, uh, it's so nice also to meet other people who have similar obsessions as me and <laughs> to have someone who's really interested in this kind of obsessions it's mm -hmm. it's really a pleasure so i hope that we will see each other again and that we will have more contact in the future as well so with that i would like to thank as well all our listeners for listening to today's episode this was episode 89 and i interviewed dr gaia nekedia on how she works on her research as well as her blog and her uh, workshop that she teaches. Uh, we'll be back next week with more on PhD life and research mechanics. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.